I thought it would be good in this summer series, which we'll start today, because our, our theme for this year has been disciples, discipleship, disciple-making, it seemed good that we better clarify our discipleship and who we are disciples of. We are not disciples of a church. We are not disciples of a denomination. We're not disciples of certain leaders. We're not even disciples of the Bible. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. And we want to get really good at it. So um, I love the series that we're involved in, and I, I thought it would be good to, to, um, to break in for the summer uh, with a gospel. And uh, the gospel of Mark, I haven't preached that before, and it's a, it's a short but powerful gospel. And uh, it'll bring us back to a, uh, to a vision of who Jesus is, so we make sure that we know who we are following, who we are seeking to, to be disciples of. It, it seems that in our world in particular, we want to get to practical as fast as we can. Pastor, tell us what practical, how do we live practically like Christians? And, and you know, we can, we can race to practical and learn how to be good moral people, but not know Jesus, not know Him. And the gospel writers are not all that pra- practical. Uh, Paul gets practical in the epistles. But the gospel writers are not all that practical. What they do is paint a picture of Jesus Christ. And when we see the glory of Christ, it shapes our lives. And so my prayer is that as we study the book of Mark together, and we'll team teach it through the summer, as we study the book of Mark together, we'll do half this summer, Lord willing, we'll go back to discipleship in the fall, and we'll complete half uh, in the spring, winter of 2020. That's... That's how it will look for us, uh, Lord willing. And my prayer is that, yes, we want to be practical, and and we'll we'll try to absolutely make certain that we apply what we're learning. But but my goal is really to simply show you a picture of Jesus as he appears in the Gospel of Mark. And if if I've done that well, if I've done that right, then, then we've done the right thing by the gospel of Mark. And so that's, that's my prayer and hope, and I hope that you'll be, you'll be changed and shaped as we together look at Mark. Uh, so turn there, please, to Mark chapter 1. Mark has this unique style of, of dealing with uh, the truth about Jesus. It's, it's different than the other, <coughs> excuse me, the other writers, the other gospel writers, particularly Ma- Matthew and Luke. Um, and as I've uh, done some early research on the Gospel of Mark, it seemed right that, that the theme of Mark, uh, in, in distinction to the other Gospels, is more pastoral. Mark's Gospel is, is a pastoral response to stressful times. And, and for good reason. We're going to see that in a few moments why. But, but Mark's Gospel is an encouragement to all of us who are frail and weak and fail the Lord and, and, uh, and, and are discouraged at times and are under stress, and to, to find out that, that the Lord is patient with us and Jesus is very gracious and he picks us up and gives us a second chance. I, I think that's what you're going to encounter in Mark, in Mark's gospel is that 
is, is the Jesus of immense grace. And I find myself very encouraged by this gospel. It begins with the resume of Jesus. And I want to talk about the resume of, of the writer of, of this gospel as well. And look at, at, so we can understand the nature of why it's presented the way it is. But it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, it would seem, to um, deputize Mark to, to share the deep, rich, emotional side of Jesus. To show Jesus as servant of the Lord, suffering, uh, rejected, understanding of our hearts and our lives, what we face. And, um, you know, when you think of a resume, of course, it's, it's a discussion usually of education and qualifications and previous occupation. <laughs> and I think to myself, how would you write a resume of Jesus Christ? Education knows everything. Qualifications, there's no one more qualified in all the universe. Previous occupation, God. I mean, you know, it, it's like, how do you begin to write a resume for Jesus? And Mark sets out to do that for us in this first few verses, Mark 1, 1 to 13. Um, I'm going to read it for you, read it with you, and then uh, I want to make some commentary about the resume of Mark and, and others, and then we'll launch back into Jesus. And, but here's how it, here's how it uh, shapes up. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How's that for a lead line? It is written in Isaiah the prophet... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the word of God. 
So let me do a little bit of background with you in terms of the author of this gospel. It's credited to a person named Mark. John Mark, likely. In fact, Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, which is in the center of Turkey, the center of Asia Minor. You've heard of a place called Laodicea, probably. Hierapolis is that part of the country, of Turkey. And Papias was a contemporary of Polycarp, who was the bishop or pastor of the church in Smyrna. And both of them were protégés of John, the apostle. They were young men in their 30s when John was an old, old man exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And they were very influenced by John and John's life with Jesus. And uh, Papias is credited with identifying Mark, traditionally, as the writer of this gospel in collaboration with the apostle Peter. And, and Papias sourced his, his, the strength of his teaching in this regard on the text in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter thir- 5, verse 13. And, and I'll read the verse for you. It says this, she who is in Babylon, now let me interpret that for you. She, meaning the church, who is in Babylon, Babylon at that time was a symbolic name for Rome. So Peter is stating in his letter, the church who is in Rome, chosen together with you, because he's writing to the people in Cappadocia and Asia Minor, together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Now, not his physical son, but his son in the Lord. And so it has genuinely been, uh, generally been handed down in church tradition through all of these years that Mark, John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark in collaboration with Peter the Apostle. And the two of them wrote it from Rome. And if you know anything about the situation of Rome at the time, in, in the early uh, 60 AD, in, in about that era, maybe a little bit earlier, Mark being the very first of the Gospels recorded, Luke and Matthew borrow things from Mark, the very first of the Gospels, you know anything about the situation of the church in Rome and Peter and Mark being there, it was under deep, deep persecution, lots of trouble, Nero being the uh, emperor of Rome and you know, he persecuted the church to get the, um, uh, to get the uh, searchlight off himself when he burnt much of the city because he wanted to do an urban renewal project himself and he wanted to burn all the poor people out of the area around his palace and then decided that he would blame Christians for it when he found out the city was enraged at him and claimed that the Christians did it and that's what started the persecution of Christians in Rome. And these guys were living there at the time. And so when I say to you that they're writing a pastoral gospel uh, to people in stressful times, this is the angle with which they recognized the Lord Jesus and, and His help and His strength in their day. So you have to see this as you read this gospel to understand what you're, what you're reading. Now, it is also a possibility in tra- tradition that John Mark, in terms of his own resume, 
was possibly the rich young man who came to Jesus. You remember the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus and said, you know, um, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus shocked him by saying back to him, there is no one good uh, except God. And uh, because Jesus knew that this young man was coming to him with a resume of, look how good I am. You know, I'm asking you what it takes to be saved, but I already know what it takes. It only takes being good, and I'm it, so I'm hoping you will congratulate me. And uh, we all know as the story unfolds that he claims to be, to be good and have kept all the commandments, although he doesn't mention anything about thou shalt not covet. And so Jesus drops a gigantic anvil in his backpack of self-righteousness and says to him, um, I'll tell you what it's going to take. Go and sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. In other words, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Take some of your wealth and give it to some people who need it, and then come and follow me. And by the way, Jesus wasn't inventing a new gospel. He wasn't saying that by works you can be saved. He was pointing out to the rich young man who thought he was good that you're not really as good as you think you are. And you could never be good enough for God anyway. You require a gift of His righteousness. But here's what it says in the text of Mark. And he went away very, you tell me, sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. And you know what it says after that? And Jesus loved him. Tradition in some circles has it that that may very well have been this young man who later came to know Christ as Savior. We do know that this, we do think as well that this is the mark because there are many marks. Mark was a common name. We do also think that this is the mark who set out with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, leaving Antioch sailing to the island of Cyprus, ministering across the island of Cyprus. By the way, this Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. It is thought that his mother and Barnabas, Barnab was the sister of Barnabas. But when they got back to the mainland of Turkey or Asia Minor, Mark left and went back to Jerusalem. And we know how P Paul wrote his resume at that moment. He called him a deserter. So on the resume of Mark, and he also is possibly the same one who was witnessing what happened to Jesus at the crucifixion and was running away and someone grabbed his garments and it says in the text that he ran away naked. So his resume was a little bit troubled. But here's... The fascinating story. While Paul wanted nothing to do with him, and while he struggled in his early days, Jesus picked him to write a gospel. I, I find that incredibly encouraging. You know, I don't know what kind of a mess-up resume you might have. You know, what kind of failure you've had in your, your days, your earlier days, your young days, whatever. 
What I find encouraging is Jesus doesn't give up on us. Jesus gives us another opportunity. In fact, this is a significant opportunity that Jesus gave to him. Mark, you're going to write a gospel. Can you imagine? Paul would have never guessed it. This guy's a, a deserter. He's, he's useless to ministry. No, no, he's not. When I get a hold of his life, I'll have him writing a gospel. How about that? I like that. I love that about Jesus. I love that about this story. You know, when I think about Paul, Paul was somewhere, somewhere in the middle of, um, let's see, he's like a, the middle of a David Platt or a John Piper and, and um, a sanctified Conor McGregor. I, when I think of Paul, that's how I think he was, you know. And, and it wasn't easy to please the guy. But here we have Mark, and Jesus picks him up and says, come on, go, go write me a gospel. And so then you've got Peter as his partner here, Peter being the apostle. I mean, Peter himself had a pretty sketchy resume. I don't have time to, to exhaust it with you this morning because it's not the point. I want to get to Jesus' resume as soon as I can, but I want, to see, I want you to know from the get-go who, who's collaborating on this gospel. You know, Peter, he was no stranger to hardship and persecution, struggles. He was the one who said, hey, what about John? Is he going to get to join me in my misery too? Because misery loves company. And Jesus says, you know, what is it to you what I do with John? You, you know, I'm, I'm going to, there's, there's some troubles coming your way. I, I doubt that any of us, I mean, how, how would you like to have on your resume, uh, once called Satan by Jesus? I, I mean, that's not something you want on your resume. But that's on Peter's resume. And so here you have these guys collaborating. So if there was ever a writing team that was more suited to record a gospel of cost and hardship, it was these two. And so we have this gospel. And um, he begins, unlike the other gospel writers, by just simply saying the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now, um, I, I want to break down this statement for a few moments with you because one of the most fascinating words in all of this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Another thing I love about Mark is he doesn't presume that his gospel is exhaustive. He simply says here, I'm writing the beginning. But more than that, I think he's telling us a, an important message. The gospel doesn't begin and end in the record of the gospels here. The gospel is an ongoing record of Jesus' work in our lives today. We need to understand that that we are part of the good news of Jesus' saving work. The, gospel be the beginning of the gospel was Jesus, but we are the continuation of the gospel. And Mark wanted to make that abundantly clear. In fact, his, his gospel ends very abruptly. It's like it doesn't really end for a reason. Because he's basically saying, that's my story, I'm sticking with it. But there's lots more to come, people. And so he presents his gospel, the beginning of the good news. What does the gospel actually mean? It's the good news of God's acts to save Israel. That's what it meant to them. You know, as you're thinking about this, you have to allow your hearts to be drawn back to millennia. You have to think about what it would have been like then. We've got so much history and we've learned so much over the years, but but they were on the cutting edge of something dramatic and something that they had always dreamed of and hoped of. And, 
and prayed about that, that Messiah would happen, but it was just happening then. And it was exciting to be there. And so the, the description here is to help them to understand what they're seeing. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, Messiah, anointed one. You know, some of us see Jesus Christ and we think his last name is Christ. It's not his last name. That's who he is. Jesus, Messiah. The Jews are going, what? Say what? Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was always promised. That's who you're saying he is? Yes, Mark says. That, that's who I'm saying in his resume. That's who I'm calling him about Jesus the Christ, the one who was promised, the one who was anointed by God to carry out the task of liberating Israel, of saving Israel. You can imagine for them, by the time they read this gospel, wait a second, Mark. This is the guy who went to the cross. We were, we were counting on someone to come and liberate us from the clutches of Rome, from the domination of our oppressors. Mark is writing here in this grand picture of Jesus. Jesus came as a conqueror over our hearts, a conqueror uh, uh, over sin and self and Satan to rescue us and to save us for all eternity. This Jesus came to save our souls, far more important than our bodies. This is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that title for us is, uh, is unmatched, unparalleled. But in 2,000 years ago, every emperor was calling himself God. And every emperor's son was being called the Son of God. And Mark is making a distinction here. He's saying, not like them, not like those ones that are being called the Son of God. This one actually is the real Son of the real and only God. That's the, the title of the resume here of Jesus. It's grand. It's spectacular. And then he, he moves into to, um, sourcing the strength of his argument through the prophetic words of Isaiah and, by the way, Malachi, and Exodus, the Torah as well. There's a conflation here of, of messages, but Isaiah is the main character here, and so Mark uses this as Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah's prophecy. And now he gets into the credentials of Jesus, revealing uh, the, the unknown and what was hidden. You know what? Uh, what we don't really understand either as well, we've been reading these Gospels for so long, they become somewhat old hat to us, but we need to understand that that the Gospels are an unveiling of what was formerly hidden. The people who were uh, in the day of, of Jesus, who were walking with Jesus and following Jesus regularly, were not led into these kinds of things. We're being led into Jesus, what Jesus saw and what Jesus heard, the things that no one else heard. This is an unveiling of what was hidden, presented to us in the Gospel. And, and so when, when Mark writes... Pay attention. He, he's writing, he's writing uh, uh, what they should have noticed when Jesus was among them. He says, don't you remember there was a forerunner? Don't you remember there was a messenger who came before him? Don't you remember that this was prophesied? Didn't you notice? Didn't you pay any attention? And, and for them, when they were hearing this language, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Uh, um, 
these, this was the kind of uh, uh, connections, Old Testament connections to them that were, were, were uh, they, they were so familiar with this. I mean, this was their social pastime. Their social pastime was, was learning the Old Testament prophecy and, and, and praying through it and, and anticipating it. And, and so, let me illustrate this in the same way as, you know, if I, if I started to whistle something like this, I got to wet my whistle here. What is that? The Andy Griffith Show. You see, we are so steeped in certain cultural connections that we just hear the music and we know exactly what it is. If I were to say to you, hello, Newman, for the younger set, it is Seinfeld. When they heard I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. They were like, that's Messiah language. It, it resonated with them. And Mark is drawing them in now to say, you missed it when he was here. You didn't notice when he was here. You've been longing for this your whole existence. This is what you've been looking for. Jesus, the Son of God, I will send my messenger ahead of you. It's the message of, uh, in Exodus 23:20, a messenger to lead the way out of, the, out of their exodus, or on their exodus, in the Torah. Then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, a second exodus is promised for, to the final deliverance through the major prophet Isaiah. This is, and, and Mark is saying, this is this. In Malachi 3, 1, a messenger to prepare the way before him prior to final judgment. And so you have the witness of the minor prophets, voices witnessing to Mark's writings. In Malachi 3.1, uh, um, it's a reference to God himself as the one who is, whose way is prepared. The messenger is preparing the way for me, God says in Malachi. And now Mark is saying the me who is God in Malachi is Jesus. He's establishing the divinity of Christ here. It's fabulous. It's, a, it's amazing. Which Jesus later confirms what Mark has left possible, that he, Jesus, is the messenger ahead of us preparing our way when Jesus said, I am the way. Come and follow me and I'll take you to the Father. I'll take you home. You follow me, I'll take you home to the Father. And then he's saying to them, remember, there was, a, there was to be a messenger ahead of the anointed one. And John the baptizer is that messenger, the forerunner. So John, he says, and so in light of the promises of prophecy, John came baptizing, just as was promised. And it says here, baptizing in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me stop here and pause for a second. The word for, if you read it the way it's just stated here, without understanding the possible interpretations of that word for, can get you confused. Like, oh, so when I'm baptized, then I am forgiven. 
Look at For can mean because of, or for can mean on the basis of. In this case, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. On the basis of your forgiveness. Not a, an act of work to, get your, to gain your salvation, but on the basis of the fact that you've been forgiven already, now you present yourself and are baptized. Notice also it says that all of them were coming to him. Now these were Jews coming to him. They already thought they were in. And John is preaching a message to them that no, Israel's defiled and deficient in that they've traded saving faith for ceremonial ritual. You have thought you could be saved by the works of your ceremony and ritual. And Jesus has come preaching a message. John has come preaching a message of repentance based on faith through the grace of God and the receiving of a righteousness from God. And all of them were to come. This was an incredible stretch for the Jews to come to faith in Christ and to follow him. They thought that Gentiles alone were the ones who needed to be baptized, not Jews. But they had to be baptized. They had to go back to a new beginning. This would be the key claims of the apostles through to the Jews that were, had for, for years, for hundreds of years, become encrusted in legalism. No, you must respond in faith by the grace of God to the salvation offered to Jesus Christ. And all who claim to know him must be baptized. That was the message we've had all day today from the candidates in the baptismal tank, those who've gone through the waters of baptism. I came to realize that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it was necessary for me to follow by way of obedience in the waters of baptism. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, as was the early reality here, all who claimed to follow him came to, to be baptized. That's what we do. That's what he called us to. I, I notice here in a detail, though, that's really strange detail picked out for John the Baptist, and that is that he was clothed in camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mark decides not to tell us anything about Christmas, but he's going to tell us about what the guy's wearing. Do you not find that strange? And what he's eating. Well, it was not strange to them. If you were to turn to 2 Kings, we won't go there, but I, you can jot it down. 2 Kings chapter, uh, um, 2 Kings, I, I jotted it down here, just let me find it quickly. Oh, you guys have it on the screen. <laughs> How nice. 2 Kings 1, 7 to 8. King Ahaziah. Is, uh, is now being, uh, there's a messenger who comes to him with a prophecy. And he's like, uh, where'd you get that prophecy from? And so they describe, they got, well, we got this prophecy from a guy who was wearing a hairy garment and he had a leather belt tied around his waist. And King Uzziah goes, oh, Elijah the Tishbite. And here... It is no accident that John the Baptist is dressed wearing Elijah's costuming because there had been about 450 years of silence. God had gone into radio silence. They hadn't heard anything from God. And suddenly, 
a prophet, the likes of Elijah, has been among us proclaiming the greatness of Messiah, the anointed one. In other words, this truly is in the resume of Jesus, the messengers come to us as was promised, a messenger like Elijah would come to us and proclaim and herald the coming of the anointed one. And so he was dressed for prophetic success in his Elijah-esque dress. And, and now we have uh, John saying, and this one will be more powerful than I, even though the power that he demonstrates will at times look weak. He's going to end up in the on the cross. All powerful in the realm of the Holy Spirit, but not power that seeks to oppress people to lift itself up but rather power to rescue people from their desperate lives and put them in the kingdom of God. And so we arrive at the baptism of Jesus. We know that John was out baptizing in the Jordan River, east of Jerusalem. In fact, at the intersection of the land of Israel and the land of Jordan, the river runs there, and John the Baptist was baptizing right there. Some of you have actually been there and have been baptized there. This is where Jesus went to be baptized. Again, it's interesting that Mark doesn't start anywhere except in the life of Jesus. He starts right here at the baptism. How important is this moment? Well, look at the text. As Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open. Let me stop there for a second. There are some details here that I don't want to pass over quickly. First of all, when heaven is open, whenever heaven's open or described as heaven being open in the Old Testament, it's always open because God is about to speak or about to act. And so hearing this, seeing this, it's like the whistle, it's they, okay, God is about to speak or about to act. And gives the recipient, a peek backstage. Now, you need to know the drama of Jesus' baptism is he is getting a look backstage heaven. Heaven opens up. But it doesn't just open up. It says here it's torn open. The word schizo. You see, when something is merely opened up, it can be closed again very easily. But when something is torn asunder, the picture is it's not to be closed again. The message here is Jesus now has torn things permanently open. There's a permanent change in the relationship between heaven and earth. Elijah and Joshua and Elisha may have parted the Jordan River. But Jesus has parted heaven and opened it up. Uh, Jesus, uh, God has torn open now the barriers between that separated us from him. And Jesus is that one. God is now on the loose in our midst, literally, as one writer puts it. But you also have here the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now let me stop for a moment and pause here too. Uh, so regularly we have this image of the Holy Spirit connected with a dove. Anybody ever seen that before? Okay, listen people. 
the Spirit of God didn't descend like a, or as a dove, but like a dove. He didn't come like swooping down like a bird in a bird's body, landing on Jesus' shoulder. Coo, coo, coo. That's not how this picture goes. It's the Holy Spirit, and the description is, and those who were eyewitnesses saw it, the Holy Spirit fluttered down. The power of God from heaven in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God himself, fluttered the, the, the new, the power of God becoming, being resident in Jesus is arriving gently on the Lord. So you have this, the reign of God now on earth is gentle. And the picture is fluttering or hovering to create an image in everyone's mind of the creation of the world where the Spirit of God hovered over the deep and the Lord God himself caused order to happen out of disorder. And the message here is, in the Christ, now the Lord God himself is going to order in human, human lives what was formerly disordered. That's the beauty of our salvation, what God has done for us, and the Spirit descends. And then a voice calls out from heaven, which no one else heard, but now the hidden is being revealed to us. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. A voice from heaven, a privileged conversation between the Father in heaven and the Son that only Jesus heard. But now he invites us. Mark invites us into the backstage pass, into the throne room of God to, to, to involve ourselves as witnesses, as eyewitnesses, as ear witnesses of what took place. And literally saying, if you have eyes to see, then see. If you have ears to hear, then hear. This is what really happened. And God says, I am well pleased, which is his sovereign prerogative. And then finally it says this, at, at once, verse, 13, verse 12, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. The testing of Jesus. I, I want you to notice here what Mark makes very distinct to us. That the Holy Spirit mission is anything but a new life of health and wealth and prosperity. The mission of Jesus by the Holy Spirit was to drive him into harm's way. And I want to wrap up our time together with a, just a moment on this. So regularly, and then drives him into the wilderness. So regularly, our lives end up in the wilderness, in times of struggle and perplexity, 
I, I mean, isn't it true that you spend more time there than you spend on top of it and knowing everything that's going on and being satisfied? I mean, isn't that where we spend a lot of our time? And truthfully, if we were honest with each other, when, when we find ourselves in those times, a, a lot of time we're thinking, I must be out of the will of God. Because why is it so rough? Why is it so hard? Why are so many people opposing me? Why, why is this journey so difficult? And, and, and we, we can at times run the risk of, of thinking that I, I surely have stepped out of God's best plan for me. Now the truth of the matter is, the first mission that the Holy Spirit sends the anointed one on is wilderness and struggle and attack and persecution and and by the way Mark is the only one who mentions he's with the wild beasts why would he mention that because there were Christians in Rome who were reading this and their kids or their their parents or or their relatives had been thrown into the 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 gladiator uh, entertainment center and 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 had been persecuted by wild beasts that had torn them apart and they were wondering, oh, you know, where is God? Does he care? Or maybe they stepped out of the will of God, and maybe this is punishment on them. And, and Mark is saying, no, no, listen, this is the truth of the walk with Jesus. It will be difficult. It will be a struggle. There will be lots of hardships and pain and hurt and, and perplexity. And, but, but in the wilderness... It, it, it's the place where priorities are clarified. It's, it's the place where voices are quelled so you can hear from God. It's the place where your options are narrowed down. It's, it's either God or die. And, and the wilderness is always, throughout the scriptures, it's always the staging ground for God to do something great. So, beloved, today your master and your Lord, your Savior and the one who knows you best, has already led the way through the wilderness and the wild beasts that were a risk on his life. Make no mistake about it. We're talking lions and things, bears and trouble. Things controlled by Satan unless God intervenes. And then it says, and angels attended him. Angels became his wingmen. The presence of God, the Father. And it is for us as well. The promise of our God is this. Just as it was with my son whom I love and am well pleased in, it is for you. I will not abandon you. I know where you are. I know where you live. I know how hard your situation is. I know the tests and temptations you are going through. I know how difficult your struggle is. And there is a way proposed by the enemy to take the fast way out and run away from me, but there is a way prepared for you. And I'm calling you to take the way prepared, not the way proposed. Because I will never leave you, says the Lord, and I will never forsake you. 
The testing of Jesus reminds us of the ongoing clash that we have throughout our lives with the enemy. It was a new Adam showdown. And Jesus took the way prepared for him and not the way proposed by the enemy. And so I urge you as well. Since our behavior grows out of our deepest convictions, what we really believe about Jesus as we paint the picture of him from the Gospels is what will really shape our lives. When we're talking about being practical, what you really believe about Jesus and who he is to you will shape your behavior and how you should live. Our Father, I pray and thank you for your word to us. I thank you for the beautiful picture of Jesus and who he is. Lord, one of our core commitments here at Calvary is to know Christ and to make him known. We can't really make him known until we know him. Lord, I pray through this series, even today in the results of today's lesson in the text, that we will know Jesus better, that our lives may live better for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 I hope that's true of your life, that he is your Savior. He um, offers you salvation this morning. If you have never turned your life over to Jesus Christ, sought him for the forgiveness of your sins, inviting him to be Lord of your life, then there's no better moment than right now. If you know him as Lord and Savior, and as we continue to study and look at the picture of Jesus Christ, I jotted down a couple of summary statements that I got out of the text and thought I'd like to share with you. And they are these, the good news, the gospel, isn't only history, it's our present experience and our future. And, and gospel life is a, is a new beginning every day. It's an opportunity to be right with God every day. What I learn in the text of Mark is it's a second chance each day to set the course of our lives following Jesus, follow after him. Another opportunity to just begin fresh. And so is today, an opportunity to begin fresh with the Lord who won't give up on you and loves you, will pick you up and dust you off and put you back on your feet and give you an assignment, a big one, a good one. That's who the Lord is. And Jesus is the one who prepares our way. He's the one who leads us and we follow him. I've found in my life, whenever I get in front of Jesus, it's a mess. So make sure you're following him, not running ahead of him. He knows the way. He's the one who runs before us, making our way straight. But I also notice that the way is anything but smooth or easy or without struggle or without trouble. The way he prepares for us to go home is generally not the way we would choose ourselves. 
through struggles and hardships and challenges. I know the way, he says, I am the way to the Father. And I'll take you home to the Father, but it probably won't be the way that you were thinking it would be. But follow me. Trust me. I've been there. I know you. I know where you live. And I know how I want to lead you. So, beloved of the Lord, allow him to lead you. Trust him. Follow him. He will lead you home to the Father. Our Father, I thank you this morning for the truth that you give to us in your scriptures. I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. I thank you for the power and the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the Savior who went to the cross that we might have salvation. I thank you for your holy presence, leading us, prompting us, giving us victory upon victory. The wilderness being staging ground for great works of God in our lives. I pray, oh God, that we won't miss what you're doing. We won't run ahead of you or lag way behind you. Might we follow courageously where you lead us. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.